I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I usually come up here with some sense of what I'm going to say. But I've been in deep conversation with our speaker backstage. And um, we're doing what people of our generation do, which is reminisce. <laughs> There's a, uh, a game out there called Passages. You can play on your iPhone or other smartphones. And it's a game that's just one person, or sometimes two people, marching through kind of obstacles for five minutes. It's a five-minute game. It's never shorter than that. It's never longer than that. And uh, goes along and paints, points are collecting, points are collecting. And I'll tell you the punchline right now, which is with the little creature is walking along alone. You can see it gradually getting bald-headed and white-haired and things like that. It's walking a little slower. And uh, at five minutes, uh, it turns into a gravestone. And that's it. That's the game. <laughs> Want to play again? <laughs> and one of the wonderful details you notice about it is at the beginning, um, there's a, a kind of a, a play space, a bar of obstacles. And when you start out, this little fresh thing bopping along, it's all in front of it. And halfway through the game, two and a half minutes, right in the middle... And toward the end of the game, it has gotten over to the right end, end of the thing. And so it has less notice about the obstacles it's running into, but there's fewer of them. And you realize that that's part of the peculiarity of having a lifespan with a beginning, a middle, and an end. At the beginning, everything's out in front of you. And at the end, what you can see most of is what's behind you. And so Mary Catherine and I have been there reminiscing because... That's what we're good at by now. The question, the long now question, is who, you know, what, we know what young people bring to the future, because the future is a big event for them. It's this whole huge thing that's got climate change in it, or who knows. What old people have is a different perspective on the future, which has got all of this personal backlog that is framing how they think about the future now. Now, is that framing wisdom? Mary Catherine Basin is here to tell us. Good evening. You have to let me hear you. I can't see you. The lights are so strong. I needed a good, strong response from you. I can hang on to the conviction that you really are there for the next however many minutes. I live in a shorter now than Stuart. Uh, I'm interested in 
human lifespans, generations and how they fit together, the stages of lives and how knowledge is passed on from generation to generation. So I'm really not up to the 10,000 year thing. Um, except to notice 10,000 years back is the Neolithic Revolution. We don't know what 10,000 years ahead is going to be. But what we do know is that the shape of lives is changing now in our time and that maybe those changes that are taking place have some promise for solving the problems that lie ahead of us. That's what I'm hoping for. I was remembering this morning, as I thought about this talk, a conversation I had with, with another woman who was just a little older than me. I was in my 20s. And she, by the time we were having this conversation, she was divorced, and she was talking about how she felt uh, the day before her wedding. And she described a conversation she had with her mother. And her mother had had rather a wild youth in the roaring 20s. And she said to her mother, she just wasn't sure that she was ready to get married. And she didn't know what the future would be. But she said, it's just so long. And her mother said, what's the matter? Does his penis frighten you? No, the future frightened her. Going off to this ceremony and talking about forever till death do us part. With some justice, if you've ever walked through a colonial graveyard, no, we're in California. Um, next time you're in New England, walk through some graveyards. And there you will find all of these graves of people, well, especially women who died in childbirth. A man might have four or five wives, one after the other who died, until finally she outlives him. And it says, you know, um, all the others are beloved wife of Ebenezer. And then there she is, relict of Ebenezer. <clears throat> A little known fact is that marriages last longer in the United States today, on average, than the, they did in the colonial era. See, we're using divorce as a substitute for death.
we've added 30 years to life expectancy in the last century, through most of human history, average life expectancy at birth was a bit over 30 years. Time enough to have a couple of kids. Um, and it still is that low in the poorest regions of the planet. And here we are in the United States, by no means the longest-lived country, but creeping up on an average life expectancy of 80. We're not quite there yet. More than double what it has been through most of human history. It's so long. We go on being grown-ups year after year after year. <laughs> to dramatize this for you, I want you to think for a minute about human childhood. You know, we're an awfully inefficient species. Most other mammals are ready to reproduce within a year after they're born. They're walking within a matter of hours. And some of the small ones are even faster. We're not capable of reproducing for 10 to 15 years. And we're not even independent then, right? We, our children don't go off and look after themselves and leave home. They're coming back until they're 30 and 35. And, <laughs> right? and it would be so much more efficient if we were born with a set of innate programs that allowed us to go off and uh, forage and look after ourselves um, without all of this long, dependent human childhood. It's a lot of work. But this long, dependent human childhood is what makes our distinctive adaptation possible. It makes us a species that has been able to adapt to conditions everywhere on the planet, able to accumulate knowledge, plan ahead, record knowledge, pass it on, makes us the time-binding species in terms of awareness of the past and ability to project into the future. And let it be said, it's also this long period of dependent childhood that makes us capable of love, capable of hope, 
conscious of persistence. I want you to imagine for a moment the possibility that the increased longevity that has been produced largely by technology, public health, things of that sort, may make a difference for the human species as momentous as the evolution of our long dependent childhood. In fact, I would argue that within the last 50 years or so, a new stage of adulthood has emerged. It's a combination of culture and technology because we've still got a lot of the cultural baggage that says you're getting old at 50 or 60 or whatever. Um, the retirement as an institution with a pension uh, was basically invented right around the turn of the 20th century. It was first set at age 70. Uh, by Bismarck in the building of a civil service for unified Germany. And if you'd worked all your life in the civil service, you could retire with a pension at 70. And I want to tell you, they didn't spend a lot of money on those pensions. <laughs> and you certainly couldn't, wouldn't have been likely to be able to keep a job after 70. And you didn't keep the pension for very long if you actually collected it. And a few years later, they moved it down to 65 We've increased longevity by 30 years since they set it at 65, and people still refer to that as traditional retirement age. And as you, as you know, many European countries are now um, having economic difficulties. Many, in many places, there's mandatory retirement at 50. That's when the AARP sends out that letter. <laughs> okay. Um, my theory is that, that the reason so many European countries have set retirement uh, and made it mandatory in that way is because they all remember the rise of fascism and the effect on a society of having large numbers of unemployed young people. In any case, in this country, we don't have mandatory retirement. Um, more and more people are working longer.
But the interesting thing is, I'm sure that everyone in this room has had conversations in which somebody said, I'm 60 or 70 or 80 or 90, but I don't feel 60 or 70 or 80 or 90, right? And basically what that bit of conversation means is a long time ago, 30, 40 years ago, I internalized a set of stereotypes about what it would be like to be 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever that is. And now I've lived that number of years on the planet. And I don't feel the way I expected to feel. Of course, I may look at other people my age <laughs> and figure they're old. I don't feel old. Right? And you've all heard this business about 60's the new 40. Right? I want to tell you, if you've passed 40, you're never going to see 40 again. It reminds me of when I was in my 20s and they said, you can have it all. Remember that? Women could have it all. Well, you can't. You balance things off and you work out a way to have what is important to you in a responsible way. But what these phrases that people use, and it's, it's, it's all through the press, what they really mean is that people are reaching these ages. It isn't just that we're living longer. We're living healthier. We're able to do far more for a longer period of time. And if you're 60, you're not going to be 40 again but you're able to do many things that you didn't imagine you would be able to do at that age. And we now have a society. You know, it used to be, through most of human history, if you were fortunate, you knew one grandparent. Most people, I think, probably got to know one grandparent for a while anyhow, and a few knew more. And most people who had children who lived to reproduce got to see at least one grandchild. Well, nowadays, there are children with seven or eight grandparents. <laughs> now, that's counting the uh, four biological grandparents and the exes and a couple of great-grandparents and a few honoraries. And they're not behaving themselves. They're not sitting around making their laps available. 
for children. They are starting new careers, going back to school and getting new degrees, going on round-the-world cruises, and eloping. scandalizing their children and grandchildren (laughs) and having a lot of fun. Now we use our own lives as measuring devices in various ways. We use our families for thinking about communities, making metaphors of relationship. What does it mean to say we're all sisters and brothers? We're taking a metaphor from the family. When we think of the future like my friend for whom the future was terrifyingly long, the married future. Uh, And we think of our own past. And those metaphors are all shifting as we move into a society with far more people living longer So we're becoming a four-generation society, a society in which there are children, not yet adult, say up to about 35, and adults, the parents, and grandparents, and great-grandparents. It's worth asking the Darwinian question. Are we increasing our fitness as a species by living longer? There is some very good evidence that we are, that among species, social species that live in groups, herds, flocks, the presence of post-reproductive adults with long memories increases the inclusive fitness of the entire flock, herd, whatever. That there's an adaptive value to have as long as memory is possible to have some members of the community, of the breeding population, uh, with longer memories. But we're gonna have to change the way our metaphors work with our grandparents behaving differently running around the way they are. You know, I used to talk about those posters 
you all know we, we have Stuart Brand to thank for the availability of some of those images of Earth as seen from the moon. There used to be posters that said, your mother, love her or leave her. Well, I think that does work in some parts of the world. But in the United States, you know what you do with mothers. You leave them. The poster speaks to a set of attitudes about time and kinship and relationship in this country. It doesn't say love her. It says leave her. There was a brief period when people thought, well, we would all go to another star and that would be fine. And at that point, I started making a slightly different argument. Instead of thinking of the planet as our mother, which many societies have done. What if we were to start thinking of the planet that we inhabit as we would think of a child? Because like a child, the planet will be here when we are all gone. The future is unknown. We can't control it. My mother used to say, the only thing you can be really proud of as a parent is that you have not damaged your child too much. Well, we're not doing that well with the planet. But it struck me as I planned what I'd talk about today one of the things I've been very interested in is what people learn as adults continuing lifelong learning and what are the circumstances that force people to learn intensively as adults or that draw them to learn intensively adults. So I've looked at what happens to refugees or what happens to people who develop a disability, um, what happens in religious conversions, what happens to immigrants who have to learn to live in a totally different cultural environment. And it struck me that one of the most intensive learning experiences in the lives of adults is the birth of a first child. You know, we're not equipped by instinct to know how to look after a child. 
we read books, we go to classes, we look up Spock. Uh, they coach you a little bit before you take the baby home. And then we have to not only learn to care for that child, but keep relearning how to care for that child who is changing from week to week. And you're short of sleep. And if the mother's breastfeeding, her breasts hurt. And your sex life is disrupted. And your social life is disrupted. And for the next 20 odd years, you're going to have to plan your life in relation to that and subsequent children. And on the whole, we're glad we did. We, you know, you got two ignorant, self-centered adults that have to learn to be decent parents. Most of the teaching is done by the newborn, actually. And it affects every aspect of life as learning to the extent that we do to mitigate climate change, to adapt to the events that it's going to bring, to deal totally differently with energy, with resources, with the international strains and conflicts that are going to result from decreasing assets, decreasing arable land. Gee, it wouldn't hurt if we started thinking of the earth as a child we're responsible for instead of a mother that we can rely on to care for us and keep giving. So what we're doing, we're changing the shape of lives and the relationship between generations the way we think of time and the way we think of space. It struck me as I thought about this phrase, the long now, which was coined by Brian Eno, that it exactly parallels the phrase that Stuart coined back for the publication of the first whole earth catalog. That the whole earth 
is a way of saying the whole here. It's parallel to the long now. Mystics and spiritual teachers talk about being in the present. How big is the present? How long is now? Being in the here and now, how large is the here that we live in? How long is the now of our present moment? I once heard a um, city planner going through the stages of the life cycle in terms of changes of mobility. With mobility, the infant in his mother's arms, very little capacity for mobility. He was going to learn to crawl find its way around the living room. At a certain age, that child will be out in the street, going to a neighbor's yard. And gradually, over time, here becomes larger for the individual. And many cultures have institutionalized a period of travel and wandering. What in, Europe, in German was called the Wanderjahr. When you go and travel, and then you settle down, and the space that you move around in, in fact, contracts a bit when a family has children that they're looking after and contracts again if physical disabilities and weakness come along. But as long as memory is intact, wherever we have traveled is still available. And of course, in terms of information, we live in a much, much larger here than any human community has ever lived in before. That includes the entire planet. And, and we live in a longer now in terms of our knowledge of the past than any communi human community has ever lived in. But we just don't have time to think about the future. And when I think about time, what strikes me is how incredibly busy adults are in our society, bombarded by information worried about what's going to happen next week, 
the next round of bills, the next election cycle, the next uh, quarterly report, the next time when they get a promotion or they don't, or a bonus or they don't. When I started looking at this issue of longevity and what does it offer us as a species, one of the things that struck me is that it offers many people who have not had time or taken time to reflect the opportunity to reflect for the first time in their lives. You know, as I say, I can't see any of your faces, but uh, in the past I've asked audiences, do you think you'll be wise when you get old? Well, I did see a few nods. Um, yeah, people say, oh, yes, as if it were automatic. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you it is not automatic. You can have all sorts of complex and rich experiences, and we all say experience is the best teacher but only if you do your homework. And the homework for the teacher called experience is reflection. And we put that off. and let ourselves be individually and as a society rushed into short-term decision-making. And we don't give ourselves the chance to become wise. And just as we know that the post-reproductive adults in a herd of deer, say, contribute to the fitness of the whole community, the presence of post-reproductive adults who have reflected on their life's experience contributes to the inclusive fitness of human communities. This has been fairly well studied. Looking at such things as the, the, the availability of grandparents in relationship to the survival rate of infants born into the community. And since I've talked about the problems of, of adapting, learning how to care for a child, boy, is it helpful to have a grandparent available. Uh, preferably a grandparent who knows when to shut up. No, it's a balance that you have to seek. 
But we actually have a very nice kind of feedback system going where each generation does some things that are new and there's an opportunity to compare them back with the previous generation, test them out. Um, a three-generation structure. Here's a nice example. When I was a child, when I was born, the accepted way to put a child to bed, to sleep, was on its back. When my daughter was born, the accepted way to put a child in the crib to sleep was on her tummy. It is now dogma that you put children down on their back and it reduces the risk of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, crib death. Now, if it was just between me and my daughter, she, has, she gives birth to a baby, and I may, might say, put the baby on its back, dear. And she'd say, no, nowadays we put the baby to sleep on his tummy. You know, they sleep much better if they don't die of SIDS. They sleep much better on their tummies because it's much more stable. Um, so they wake up more easily when they're on their backs. But we can have a conversation where I say, this is how my mother did it and what I did was different, and what you're doing is different from what I did, but isn't it fun that it's the same thing that was true of what your grandmother did? So that with three generations, and even with four generations, we can learn to look at the nature of the changes we are making. And think about the process of change in a way that only this overlapping of generations will allow. So what we have today, suddenly, fairly suddenly, is especially with the retirement of the baby boomers, a wealth of grandparents all giving advice. A lot of people don't think this is an improvement. It's going to bankrupt Medicare and Social Security. Um, and uh, there are all these useless people around, and we're going to have to change the timing of the traffic lights. Heaven knows what. <laughs> you get slower crossing the street, you know. 
we haven't yet learned to benefit as a society from the availability of grandparents who are unlike any cohort of grandparents in the past in terms of their health and richness of experience and engagement with the world. And you know what we're telling them? We're telling them, go live in a sun city and play golf. Uh, when politicians speak to seniors, they talk about entitlements. The assumption is that's all they care about, Medicare, prescription drug benefits, and so on. There's something profoundly demeaning about that. To say to people who have had busy, productive lives, now you go off in a corner, semi-segregated, and you don't have to care about the future. Honestly, you know, there are people who will say, will say to themselves, if I talk about climate change, they say, ah, I'll be dead by then. I don't care. But the reality is that the grandparents and the great-grandparents and the uncles and aunts and great-uncles and great-aunts are invested in the future, do care about what will happen to the planet, care about the world in which the children they love as little kids are going to raise their own children. And what we need to do I deeply believe, is to mobilize that concern, bolster it with a new awareness, a new consciousness of what people can do as they get older. Put them to work. Get some juice out of them, us. Take advantage of having a group of people with some time for reflection, looking forward, looking backwards, deciding which changes make sense, which changes don't make sense. I use the term consciousness Because every liberation movement that's happened in this country has 
involved people getting rid of stereotypes that they internalized and thinking through what they wanted, what was possible, what could change. It was true of the civil rights movement. It was true of the women's movement. It was true of gay liberation. Sometimes the rhetoric starts with, I want more for my group, equality. But then when the equality comes, you get the contributions, the participation, the engagement. Back in the 2004 election, I got together, I've been meeting with a group of women, all women who'd been involved in the women's movement. I'm 70. Okay, we, we met for about, we've been meeting for about 10 years. In other words, we met to say, we fought for the right to work. We fought for the possibility of participating and taking responsibility being involved in decisions. Now everybody says, don't you want to retire? So we met from all over the country. You know of the names of several, you know, Pat Schroeder. You may know Ellen Goodman, the columnist, a novelist, a psychotherapist, an anthropologist. Oh, Jerry Ferraro. Trying to figure out, we've been through this once. We've had to rethink our lives once. We've had to get rid of the stereotypes about women and what women can and should want in their lives. and what women have to offer by being full participants in society. And so what do we think about retirement? So we put together a project and we called Granny Voter. <laughs> and I still have a button. It's a... Uh, rocking chair, but it's jet propelled. <laughs> and our motto was, I'm voting for my grandchild. He or she doesn't have the vote. And you can still find this on the internet. haven't done a lot since the campaign of 04, but it's about, it's, it's grannyvoter.org, www.grannyvoter.org on the internet. And it's just about to be revived. 
uh, because I'm taking the project, which I was trying to run off my kitchen table. And I don't have a kitchen table, I just have a counter. Um, taking the project into a nonprofit called Generations United. Because I think the time has come to look at this large group of people who've come to a kind of a transition point in their lives. Some have retired. In some cases, the children have left home. In other cases, they may have lost jobs. And quite deliberately say, If we reflect, if we work together, we can make the fact that we live longer as critical, as important to maintaining society as a long childhood is. we can turn the specter of all these expensive old people into a resource. And when we do that, I'm just going to finish now. When we do that, I think we're going to look at the entire life cycle somewhat differently. We're going to have to say, boy, schools have to be different starting with nursery school if people are going to be engaged participants in society for the next 60, 70 years with all the changes going on. We're going to look differently at careers. We're going to speak differently about the decision to retire or not retire. We're going to recover the volunteer force that disappeared when women went into paid employment. We're going to look differently at marriages, too. with the likelihood of both being alive for a great many years, you've got to figure out how you're going to keep relearning relationships as you go along. So what I'm saying is not just about what one might want to do in one's 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s. It's about having a society in which we get the full benefit of the experience and wisdom of people at all 
different ages as they continue to learn and adapt. And we take full advantage of our adaptability as human beings to learn to live at peace with our planet. Can we get the house lights up a bit so Mary Catherine can finally see who's here? Actually, yeah, isn't that neat? Hey. <laughs> well, the institutionalization of the elderly or everybody older than fifty has been AARP getting that letter, <laughs> and AARP pretty much is an invitation to uh, entitlement and not to taking on responsibility, as near as I can tell. Um, is anybody busting AARP for this and saying, get with the program? You know, I don't want to bust the AARP. I do. Go ahead. Uh, well, let me finish the sentence. Um, because they've done important work. They've gotten stuck. Mm -hmm. um, it's been, I mean, the, the very availability, the huge increase, for instance, of childcare that's being done by grandparents now, mm -hmm. um, the number of people doing volunteer work, uh, many of those things are possible for them because... Mm -hmm. Old age does not mean penury. Mm -hmm. And because they're not in panic of the next time they have to go to the doctor. Okay? So the structure of benefits that we have is not something to just throw away. Okay. It's something to expect a return on. And how do you do that? And, and I don't see the AARP moving strongly in that direction. There's some of it. Mm -hmm. um, the Grey Panthers, which didn't survive really in large numbers the loss of Maggie Kuhn. They, and they demised about the same time the Black Panthers did. Really... Right. Well, but the point is that the, that the Grey Panthers or the raging grannies against the war in Iraq or mm -hmm. what have you, were organizations of older adults for the larger society rather than for the member for other older adults. Mm -hmm. And we've got to have a bit of both. And I, I'm more inclined uh, to try and seed something and get small groups thinking through what they want to do uh, and then maybe it'll, the ARP will also evolve. The small groups cohort, does that tend to be people of an age and of a set of experience? Or is it multi-generational, like whole families that take this on? Horizontal or vertical, I guess, is, is what I mean. Is where, is, what grouping is most 
has highest yield there, or is that even a good question? I think at this point in time, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the odd thing is a lot of people are making decisions as if they were going to be dead in five years. Right. And then they're around for 30. It's a sequence of five-year plans. There's six of them. <laughs> After a while, there's no plan. You just sit there. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think there is, there is a game for older adults talking this business through. And, you know, we get ageist, too. Okay. Right? Um, uh, my, my godmother went into an assisted living and I visiting her, I, I asked her, have you made some friends since you moved in? And she said to me, oh, Catherine, everyone here is so deteriorated. <laughs> well, she didn't think she was deteriorated. She just thought all those other people were. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is part of what we have to get beyond if we're going to get anything done. But... But the alliance between grandparents and grandchildren is absolutely critical. Yeah, and it's powerful. It really is there because <clears throat> the war between children and parents is, is genuine and mm -hmm. it has to be fought out sort of week by week. Mm -hmm. The common enemy. But the, yeah, the con And then there's the piece of that you can make. You can, a grandparent is a parent without uh, the hassle. Or the, without the you know the obligate the sense of having to obey and all that tough stuff, and hence the value presumably. I guess the question is, is that extended with grandparents, great grandparents, and so on, or is a four generation different than three generation, or is it just more of the same? I think the great grandparents. Mm -hmm. Physically, they in terms of the their condition, resemble mm -hmm. the grandparents in the past. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, the the tricky question, however, is that in the past, the parent generation was simultaneously caring for children. And for their parents. Right. That was the traditional family structure. Uh, yeah, and that's the now, developing world has a lot of that now. Those grand, the developing world is like that. At the moment, the grandparents are going off and, and you know, don't going on around the world tours, mm -hmm. and the great grandparents don't have that, quite that relationship with their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So there's a problem there. I mean, we're going to get old. We're going to get old later. And in not all the same ways, mm -hmm. um, but the timing is different, and the dynamics are going to be different, and I can't tell how it's going to work. Here's a question from Malcolm. Uh, how about adulthood? Three, for those of us past 75, where physical issues can cause intermittent quality of life. Sometimes you're on, and sometimes you're not. Well, you know, of course, that's, Malcolm. if you're, you're real lucky if that doesn't happen until you're how old? 
Uh, past 75. You got five years. Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, adulthood, too, in so many ways, do you know what it resembles? It resembles adolescence. I mean, what happens when you're a teenager? You're an adolescent. Well, your skin gets all funny. It gets zits. And your hair doesn't do what you want it to do. And your body feels different. And people look at you differently with different expectations. Uh-huh. Um, and, it, and adulthood, too, is like that. Okay. Everybody is dealing. I figure most people in adulthood, too, have had at least one medical event that they would have died of uh-huh. a generation ago, uh-huh. and often several. Uh-huh. Most everyone in adulthood, too, is taking at least one long-term medication. Uh Okay. There are already friends who are dying. Uh Contemporaries. Uh We got used to contemporaries dying. Not, Not as many as in the past at those ages, but still. And, you know, you are discovering limits. Not just limits, I'm going to live forever, but limits to energy, resilience, all of those things. Uh-huh. You've got to take that into account. Say more about the death part. Is I'm 72, and my cohort, these days, it, it feels like Pickett's charge. You know, we're, we're going up the hill at Gettysburg. And uh, I've, I've done this. I actually once got to reenact Gettysburg with a bunch of other people, and we're all, you know, little bit, you walk most of the way up the hill, and there's a guy saying, you're dead, you're dead, and, you know, close up, close up ranks, and there's fewer and fewer people, and then they say, now, dead run up the last of the hill, and you're being tap, 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 nobody gets to the top of the hill. Well, that's life for us in the 70s, is, you know, Pickett's charge, the people around us, there's few every time we look around. And we're going to funerals and, and, and. So there's a, um, you do think, uh, who cares, I'll be dead, or it's a five-year plan at best, or things like that. So the the mortality, the presence of mortality is not there for people in their 20s, even in the military. In Marines, it's famous that uh, young Marines discover they're mortal just about the age of 25, (laughs) And then their behavior changes, by the way. The way the system works is old men send young men to die on battlefields because the young men think they're immortal. Right. And and that turns out to be a uh, something you get over. And then what? So the the sense of mortality is this part. Is that something that reflection then can work with in a useful way? Or does denial of death play out some other pathologies as it becomes more real? Well, you know, I think the denial of death that we have in this culture mm-hmm. um, what it means is that we live a lie for many years of our life. Mm-hmm. And add to that the denial of aging, 
you know, the dyeing of hair and the facelifts and, mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, you know, maintaining a falsehood takes a lot of energy. Ah, um, I'm going to die. Phew. Yeah. 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 I'm serious. Okay. I'm going to die. That's good. I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> I'm not going to rush it. But how terrible it would be if I wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, one of the obligations, mm -hmm. I would say, that goes with getting older is to do so in a way that allows the next cohort coming along to say, yeah, I'm going to die eventually too. Hmm. How, how do you do and that? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Gregory. Okay, say more. Gregory died here in San Francisco. He died at Zen Center. At Zen Center. Mm -hmm. um, and he, um, he'd had cancer, um, and he had been told, he hadn't been told, Lois, his wife had been told, that he probably wouldn't live more than a month. And he, I was in Iran, and... Um, he called me up in Iran and said, I have a book I have to finish. And I got my cancers returned. Uh, sorry, I have a book I have to finish. Please come and help me finish it. So I came mm -hmm. and we worked on, that was mind and nature. Mm -hmm. And I may say that your foundation put up the money for my fare. You've forgotten that? I had forgotten that. <laughs> um, and we finished the book. And his cancer went into remission. And I went back to Iran, and he went down to Esalen ah. and lived there with the cancer in remission for the next two years and signed another book contract. <laughs> uh, but, but then when he started to fail again and he was in pain and discomfort, he said, oh, this is it. I don't want to be propped up and kept alive. I'm going to go to Zen Center. I'm going to learn how to let go and die. Did your being around that horrify or release or what for you? I mean, you saw him fail and die. Yeah. Uh, does that make you easier about your own eventual failing and dying? Sure. How so? Well, there were a couple of things. Um, it was, for me, an immense privilege to be caring for him. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot from that. Uh, I learned from his acceptance and the argument that he made and that I've made since. Mm -hmm. You know that um, dying is part of life. Okay. 
I learned a lot from being at Zen Center at that point, mm. meditating on the whole thing. They got your attention, yes. Got my attention. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've, I've, you know, I've been with three people through their death since that time. Mm -hmm. three, three different people who made the decision that they didn't want to be bolstered and put on machines, mm -hmm. that they figured their time was up, um, and that they wanted the, the time of their dying to be a peaceful, reflective time. Uh, yeah, we got cool drugs now that make the pain not such a big issue. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good thing. I'm not against that. Mm -hmm. we've, we, we've even got uh, physicians who are not worried that one might become addicted to drugs if one <laughs> has only two weeks to live. <laughs> what if the afterlife is filled with these dope fiends? <laughs> But it's okay, it's heaven and there's plenty. <laughs> Question from Anonymous. In our frantic techno-go-go -go world where uh, youth is adored and new improved is holy writ, do you really think younger people are the slightest bit interested in what elders say? You know, we are a very unusual country. I mean, we have uh, more negative ideas about aging than any other country I can think of. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so Iran, what do they do with old people there? Well, they keep their elders in the home mm -hmm. and look after them. And if their rheumatism hurts them, they get them opium. Mm -hmm. um, and they obey them. I mean... Do you want obedience from... Your family? No. Um, I want, however, respect as a person, not as a pain in the neck. And I have to earn that. Mm -hmm. I have to keep earning that. Um, Good. But I, I wanted to say something else because I don't think in a society that is changing rapidly, that young people are going to respect older people unless the older people are learning as they go along, which is something you have modeled all your life. Right? Hmm. You're into new things. You're exploring things. And you're saying that... You, as I say... Willing to learn. Yeah. You are not what you know, but what you are willing to learn. And you're saying there's this whole huge cadre of adulthood to people who are in that mode, who want to learn. Awful lot. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying all. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think we support it well. I think... What would supporting it well mean? Uh, well... When you were seven, mm -hmm. did your parents say to you, do what I say, Stuart. I'm the grown-up. I know best. 
Or did they explain things to you? Um, I think the explaining part came later. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was of a generation where it was pretty much, uh, I said it's the case and I'll give you some reasons, but they don't really count. You're going to do it because you're, you're going to do it. And uh, be spanked, otherwise I got spanked. Remember that? Did anybody here spank kids? They won't admit it in public. <laughs> you know, I don't think I was desperately damaged by being spanked, but I don't think I was particularly improved either. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, on their back, on their front kind of deals. Comes and goes, so what? The parts that are oh, different. Here's the parts that are different. What, what, I, was, what, I, was, what I was saying about supporting it, however, mm-hmm. okay. is... If the message were human beings can learn all the way through their lives, when you're living in a rapidly changing society, mm-hmm. you need to make the opportunities to learn, and you need to learn from your grandchildren. There's a lot of that. It seems like, yeah, if you get to play games with the kids, the games they're playing are games you didn't play when you were young, and so you, you learn their games, and that's that. They're not the slightest bit interested in the blocks that you played with or whatever. Right? Right. And then the other major thing that I've seen is it used to be, trust me on this, when kids went away to college, they went away. <laughs> you saw them at Christmas, maybe, maybe Thanksgiving that diminished and then when they got married and that was pretty much it now with email they just it's as if they just moved down the block they're not sleeping in the house anymore but Twitter and everything you know about their grades about their girlfriends and boyfriends uh, is that changing adulthood and grandparenthood the generations have are, are thanks to just smartphones are staying connected in a way they didn't used to do you mean the way they didn't used to do for a sort of an intervening period? That of weird about period 50 when years, we went away to prep schools. Before and that, stuff, they yeah, didn't right. go away. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but at one stage, the largest number of people becoming computer literate and going on the internet mm-hmm. were grandparents. That and, they right were, there. and they were learning how to do it. Right. Now, this is the interesting thing. They were learning how to do it from their grandchildren. Right. Not their children, their grandchildren. So they could be in touch with each other. Yep. You know, one of the things that I do sometimes if I speak at a school, I kind of like, I've even spoken at, at you know, elementary schools. It's hmm. a lot of fun. I'll bet. Um, is to say, well, what have you taught your parents? Hmm. And there's this awful silence because it's a taboo question. They've been told they're supposed to learn from older people, not teach them. Your mother put that out as a program. She was, 
quite worried when my generation was taking drugs that our parents, including her generation, didn't know about and were worried about. And she said, when the younger generation knows more about something important than the older generation, that is a disruption in society. Well, yeah, but look, if you keep telling the children that you know best, you know best, you know mm -hmm. best, they're not going to tell you about how nice those drugs are. <laughs> <laughs> so what you have to do, I'm very serious about this. Mm -hmm. You have to say, teach me. The adults have to say, teach me, to the The adults young. have to say, teach me. Okay. Let's finish up on the Earth as uh, first child story, which is pretty strong. And, um, you know, the whole environmentalist approach to life is that nature is perfect. Humans are, at best, imperfect. All we can do is screw up nature. And you're basically saying, no, we are totally responsible for the earth, for nature. Um, and this is sort of Marshall McLuhan's line of after Sputnik, there is no nature, only art. That <laughs> we are now in the situation where basically the whole world is a, is a, a work of art to some extent. It's got its own history, which is very important. We're still understanding it, all of those things. But nevertheless... In the Anthropocene, in the human-modified geological era that we have created for ourselves, we have this parental responsibility for this infant Earth. Um, play that out. We have a capacity... We've had a steadily increasing capacity to disrupt the life of the planet. Apparently accelerating as well as steadily increasing. Accelerating, sure. Um, and often in irreversible ways. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, remember the, 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 the Pleistocene extinctions that mm -hmm. may have been... Mm -hmm anthropogenic um, and we're not we can't get rid of that capacity to damage this comes as news to lots of environmentalists but I think it's true we imagine that we can go back to the land and the land will not be changed by our, well, our being around and it's too late for that it's, it's too late for that Yeah, it really is too late for that um, uh, a lot of the climate change is, is already fixed. Mm -hmm. It's set. It's moving in that direction. Yep. Buildup of, of pollutants has happened already. Uh, the, the elimination of multiple species has happened already. Mm -hmm. Okay? We can do some restoration. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if we all disappeared, some would happen. Uh, no, it's like Pripyat it comes back immediately. You know, the Chernobyl turned into uh, the, the best wildlands in Europe as soon as people left. More or less. There are some questions about that. But <laughs> there's some awfully funny-looking insects 
<laughs> there are some arthropods right close to the reactor that are strange, but they're probably improvements. <laughs> if we're going to survive on this planet, we have to work out a way of living at peace with it. And at the moment, the damaging initiative is with us and the caretaking initiative is with us. So we're back to your mother's directive of the best you can hope for as a parent is not to damage the child too much. Yeah. And stay on both sides of that metaphor for a moment. Is the main thing to keep the child out of the street or from uh, getting a fatal disease as opposed to just a disease that has them down for a week and out of school? Or what is it that is, uh, you know, those things are easy to say about not, not damaging a child. What are some other aspects of not damaging a child that might apply to earth care? If we well, let the I, suppose, earth... I suppose your analogy, the analogy would be being hit by an asteroid. I mean, I don't know we that can we can prevent, prevent that. that. We can prevent that now with present technology. That one's covered. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Think of something else. Uh, <laughs> it, well, the worst one I've heard is that we can be the next Venus, which has no life on it at all. We, we can lose the whole Gaian apparatus by going too far. And then it's not just a question of a billion people left, it's of nothing living left, which is the surface of Venus with the greenhouse effect that has really yeah, run away. But, but what I'm trying to say I've is been reflecting on that. There, there are things there are things that we can't prevent, like earthquakes or volcanic eruptions or what have you. And there are things that are anthropogenic that we can do something about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the child that gets a, a disease, a communicable disease, as the way, w when we were growing up, our parents were afraid we'd get polio. They didn't yet have Damn a vaccine. Straight. Yeah, uh, right? I was in the thick of that. I was paid a penny a fly to kill flies because we thought they came from flies. And, and I was always hauled off to the country because you were likely to get polio if you were in a city because there were other people there. Uh, okay. I mean, there's only so much you can do. Uh, that's not what she has in mind. What, what she had in mind when she said that whether you've damaged a child is, is you've damaged that child by physical abuse, by sexual abuse, by depriving that child of education. Okay. Uh, given that... There's a developmental cycle. If you don't learn to talk at the right time, mm -hmm. you never will learn to talk. If, if the you, child you isn't held, there's unfold. a bunch of stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think, what she has in mind. And I think she took for granted, you know, that there are no perfect parents. And there is no, there are no adults that don't have a certain amount of ambivalence. Parents have ambivalence, too. Ah. So, so it's okay to feel 
ambivalence about the earth as well as somehow make peace with it. A little. <laughs> <laughs> this is a conversation that is going to go on the rest of Catherine's and my life, which may be a long time, and the rest of everybody's life. It is a conversation which is, we assume, a 10,000-year conversation. We just had a few words in. Thank you for coming to it this evening. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.